Hey everybody, welcome back. It's me, Matt Tinney. And Niels Rosenbaum. He's a duck. And he's a cop. Nailed it. That was pretty good, yeah. actually. <laughs> so I'm actually trying, I just went on Facebook to try to find a question, and I apologize, but if you're listening, I wanted to make sure to get your question on the air for you. And this was reference a news article, Niels. I'm okay. not sure if you are familiar with it, but I guess in Florida they passed some new laws or created some new units in, in a sheriff's department. Okay. And so I think it's called the Baker Act out there. Okay. And it's some law around uh, people living with a mental illness. Okay. And and in it, it mimics the federal law for prohibited persons with firearms. Got it. And so pretty much they have – one, they have, I think, gun restraining orders. So okay. if you have attempted or threatened to take your life, I think they can – can do a restraining order to hold your firearm for you. Yeah, that's a good idea. So that's idea. one. But then they mimic the federal law that indicates if you're adjudicated mentally ill, uh-huh. you can no longer possess firearms. Indefinitely. I'm not or sure, forever. actually. I don't know if it's forever or if it's a, a period, okay. but you, you can't own you can probably or possess appeal one. In right. Some way. Okay. And so they, they have a unit, I guess, in the sheriff's. That collects um, the guns. Yeah, that's going out. Sure, they and do they're that doing in California. Right. Too. And yeah. so they're doing follow ups with chronic, uh, callers and people that are in and out of the mental health system i guess interesting okay and i think it was something related to unfortunately some mass shooting sure um and i know i think there's been a couple in florida i hate to say yeah. that yeah that was national news yeah that was a big right um and so someone wrote on there and they were actually for it so they said oh this is a great idea thank you and so their question is i see that that this is for people that have a mental illness what about officers that have ptsd oh okay so sure. what do you think of that? I mean, you are in, in the business of helping officers. I mean, now. there's, there's a couple ways to answer that. One, what do I think about? I mean, first off, let's all be is. on the same page. Officers can't get PTSD, right? Of that's course, a, they're that's all a, iron-willed. Yeah. And we're robotic mean. soldiers. <laughs> we have so, no emotion. So first off, the law, I don't know enough about it, but I'm assuming it mimics the other laws is to be adjudicated mentally ill means that you are committed against your will to a hospital, or you're found incompetent to stand trial. It's not that they say, your doctor says you have PTSD, and now we're going to adjudicate you mentally ill. Right. So uh, it usually has to be a serious consequence of your mental illness, usually some kind of contact with the law. So let I mean, me every stop law you has real their own quick variation. Because I want to make sure that people understand that. So yeah. one you said is you're found not competent in court. So that would mean like me as an officer, I write you a citation or arrest you for something. Mm-hmm. And in court, someone says my client or the judge says, I don't think this person understands the court system. They yeah. raise what's called competency. Yes. So someone goes to a psychologist or some places, a, a psychiatrist maybe, and they do an assessment uh-huh. to figure out if they understand court. And if you're found not competent, you can't be charged for this in most places. And so it, it can't goes be tried, yeah. tried. Right. And so it goes on your record that you were incompetent to stand trial, which is adjudication because of a mental deficiency. And then so different jurisdictions handle it differently. Some right. it's just like, okay, bye. And others, they try to rehabilitate you right. with medicine but, to see if you can become competent. And so you said something about committed to hospital. And this was always confusing to me because I just okay. thought committed to hospital means like, you're like, Hey, I need to stay at the hospital and you get like admitted. But okay. what does it mean by you're saying committed against your will? So it's not – if I have PTSD and I feel really bad and I'm brought to the hospital and I'm admitted, that won't mean that I can't get a gun ever. Uh, okay. What that would mean is I sought treatment and got treatment, which is good. Okay. If I have really bad PTSD, 
and I'm yelling at the neighbors and I think people are trying to hurt me and I buy a gun and I threaten to kill my across the street neighbor I brought to the hospital. Now I'm admitted. And then I go through a court hearing and they say, yeah, you have to stay in the hospital for at least a week or until you're not dangerous anymore. Then I've been committed against my will because of PTSD. Right. And it's because of court hearing, though. It's the it's, court hearing is the, the It's not the diagnosis. No, it's and not the diagnosis. I think that's the biggest misconception. People yeah. think people with a mental illness cannot own a gun, and that's not true. No, you have to. I mean, I think some places have, like, let's say your brother is schizophrenic and suicidal, living with schizophrenia, and he's just on and off suicidal, and now he wants to get a gun. I think there's some places where the family can petition and say, hey – but then you generally have to get your own lawyer, and it's a big process. Uh, the easiest is always an incompetent to stand trial or um, uh, committed against your will, which is a, both are trials. Right. All of them have to be a trial. And so I think that's where, where I want to make sure that people listening, if you think you know that you, you might be living with a mental illness and you want treatment and you're worried, like, I don't want to be labeled mentally ill because I might lose freedoms. That's not the truth. No. It's all through the court system. Yeah. The same thing, you know, if you, you know, steal mail and you have a felony arrest, you also lose limitations because you have been federally tried on yeah. it, you know? So it's the same thing. It's not, it's not just you and who you are. It's the court system. I mean, so, sometimes it can get very tricky, at least in, in some states, if you're very smart and you're mentally ill, which is completely compatible, right. and you like guns, all three things that can go together, you're brought to the hospital by the cops, they're about to admit you involuntarily, or you see the writing on the wall, you say, no, I'll go involuntarily. Right. And, and we've had that exact case that several happen. times. Yeah. It's and, very frequent and here. And so it's it's a tricky one. You it takes the coordination between the the doctor, the hospital, and the detective. And we've done right. this where it's like we're going to admit them against their will for a day. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I think there's just this hope and this – everyone has this fear that it's people with mental illness that are doing mass shootings. And they have this idea like you take yeah, a gun no, away not... and it will prevent it. But I don't think – it's not that easy. It's no. – a lot of people with major mental illness that, that have – firearms they have the rights to them. of course and you take them to the hospital thinking that oh they're going to the hospital they can't have them that's not true no and it's very hard to actually take firearms from people because of our you know constitution. no it makes people it makes the public feel better it's a quick and right. easy soundbite oh it's these mentally ill people that are killing people yeah. so let's take away their guns and i'm sort of for taking away guns from people with serious mental illness because they're most likely to kill themselves by right. far and then the next way, way down the line is family. And then the odds of someone with mental illness going on a rampage and killing people is just so slight. Right. Um, but I think it's easy, like you're saying, to sell a story because no one wants to be like, I'm a person that could just murder everyone. That person has to be, quote, crazy. Yeah. So it's even like that person killed a bunch of people. They're crazy because yeah. I wouldn't do that. No, I mean, the the statistics are pretty clear. I mean, in places where there are more guns and generally there are less gun you know laws but whatever the reason is where there are more guns there are more suicides more completed yeah. suicides where there's places with less guns there's less completed suicides it, it seems to it. me like such an obvious correlation that it seems causal to me but everyone it's not the gun nails it's well, not the gun. No, but it, it's it's not the gun. Someone has to be having a willingness or a desire to end their own life. Right. But the gun just makes it so easy. And yeah, the example so I always easier. use is 
everybody's seen that commercial by now with the easy button for staples. Right. Yeah. If everybody had an easy button that would just end your life painlessly and you would just oh, be gone, be so much more suicide, suicide rate would go through the roof. You're right. And the closest thing we have to an easy button at the bedside is a gun by the bedside. It's true. And because it's pretty effective. Um, so if we can restrict that, I think it, it, it's better for healthcare. Yeah. Sorry, we went on a tangent on that one. Yeah. But okay. So, it's a great question. But I wanted to make sure. So people are then adjudicated, and then uh, what happens? So like with officers, let's say. This was the question. Okay. I actually found it. So Wait. it said it just – the question was, what happens if a cop has a mental illness or PTSD? Reference that, and they have a follow-up question, but I don't want to get into that one yet. They're, I would assume they're treated like anyone else. Right. So if they're admitted against their will, they can't be a cop anymore. Right. I mean, they can still work for the police department, but they can't carry a gun. Uh, so, but that doesn't mean people with PTSD can't carry guns. You have Correct. to, you have to essentially be, have such a profound mental illness that you don't understand a court case or you're because of a mental illness, you've been deemed dangerous to yourself or others because of that illness. So it's got to be pretty severe. Yeah. And PTSD can do that. Uh, not frequently, but it definitely can. Right. Um, but for an officer to get that ill to the point that they're admitted against their will is uh, just doesn't happen that often. But if it did, you treat them like everybody else. Right. And I think that that's a misconception. I think people think that officers have, I guess, more rights than other people. Like, mm -hmm. are we we have like get out of things like jail yeah, yeah, and things yeah. like this? You don't. No, we don't. We're just um, like normal people. In fact, some of the constitutions don't apply to us anymore. Like, what? Did yeah. you say some of the constitution doesn't apply to wait, us? Wait, you're wait, like, hold on. <laughs> no, 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 no. That was bad. That was bad. What I'm trying to doesn't say. doesn't jive with what you're saying. <laughs> we're not above the law. We're above the constitution. I should say we're held to a higher standard okay. on, on some of the constitutions. It's like the right to, to self-defense. Okay. So you, let's say, have a firearm in your house and someone breaks in. You might be able to, to get away with using that firearm because someone's not listening to you and they come into your house. Okay. But because of all our training with self-defense and use of force oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah, constitution, yeah, that's a good point. we can't just use the same amount of force as everyone else, even in our private home settings wow. on that. And so – and a big thing right now with law enforcement is our private use of social media. So okay. a lot of agencies say that's that right. we actually don't have the right to freedom of speech on social media if we are, in fact, law enforcement. Yeah, it's interesting. So there, there's things like that that apply to us, but everything else, like if we're injured to a certain extent, you can't be an officer. You know, there's there's limitations to the job, yeah. and the same thing with your health, be it your physical health or your mental. Health, the same thing applies to us. And law, you can't and the go law, breaking laws. Right, we can't break the law. But and you're get away saying, with it in we have a general, badge. if anything, you have more restrictions in terms yes. of what you're allowed to do legally. Right, which makes sense. And so she also wrote, and this is for Lisa. So Lisa, if you're listening, I'm sorry in the beginning that I couldn't find your post, but I found it now. So her follow-up question was, it's about HIPAA. Okay. So if law enforcement is dealing with this new law and they're dealing with mental health and adjudication, so somehow they know about mental health, must they be HIPAA compliant? Oh, that's a great question. So This actually comes up quite frequently, I feel the like. The short answer is no. The, the police officers are not. Uh, bound by HIPAA for many reasons. One, HIPAA was designed for it's the Health Insurance Portability and Act or whatever. Accountability right? Act. It, Portability and Accountability Act. So it was really about insurance and billing insurance. And so 
to make sure that when they transfer information, it's protected. So I give my money to my insurer. Then I go to the doctor. The doctor right. gives my information to the insurer. I want to make sure that some guy at the insurance company is not like, oh, how interesting. My next door neighbor <laughs> is seen. Right. So it has to be very well kept. And so you have to bill. And you have to be a medical provider. Otherwise, there's no HIPAA. There's no HIPAA at like um, AA meetings. You know, they're supposed to be anonymous. Oh, that's but, a great example. But if someone in the group says, hey, look, I met all these people and here they are and they're their names. There's no law that they're breaking. Oh, I have another question for you then. Kind of mean. So you were talking about insurance. So here in a lot of places have private ambulances that respond with public safety. Okay. So you might have your police department, fire department, and then they have a contract for an agency that transports. Okay. Those agencies bill insurance for your ambulance. Yes. So they're HIPAA compliant. And so if officers are there on scene. I mean, those, the officers that work for the ambulance? No, no. The op- like you have police officers there. This ambulance company comes. Does that situation then become HIPAA? Only for the ambulance, right. not for the officers. The ambulance providers can't sell, can't disclose who they were. Yeah, treated. like let's say the ambulance shows up and then the officer shows up and the ambulance driver knows this guy and knows that they have HIV or something. They can't say, hey, by the way, this guy has AIDS. Interesting. So, um, but see what, what, what I find is interesting on this and someone sent us a video, if you remember uh-huh. this, of some officers saying you can't film here, it's HIPAA. And they were okay. talking about the they don't like officers using the term HIPAA because it's misunderstood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, but yeah, so, that video. Yeah, so, that. like, let's say this is where I'm wondering. This is just bizarre to me. So, officer, let's say someone gets hit by a car. Okay. Officers show up. They're on the street. They're bleeding. They're checking them. They get their ID. Then ambulance shows up. Ambulance is, is you know, the private insurance. They get their ID. They're doing stuff. And someone okay. goes up and asks the ambulance, hey, who is this guy? I think I know him. They can't tell them. It's HIPAA compliant because they bill but you ask the officers, it's public information. Yeah. It's so strange. Yeah, isn't that you're, weird? You're on the same call. Yeah. But, you know, the HIPAA isn't or, you know, isn't on the incident. It's on the providers. Yes. And I think that's where people think that an incident is is covered. But it's not. It's who is it's who is, is billing insurance. Yeah. But say, like, let's say a provider calls a cop and says, here's all this information. I'm worried about him. And they give too much information. You know, let's say maybe they're not even that dangerous and they give a bunch of information to the cop. The cop can go and tell that to whomever they want. I mean, it's right. not the nicest thing to do unless they have their own SOPs and regulations, but they can tell anybody. Right. They can even say it was that provider who told me and that provider would get fired. But yeah, no, the cops aren't bound by it. Citizens aren't bound by it. It's just the providers and providers who build. And yeah. have electronic records. And I think that's something for you guys to think about because right now in law enforcement, there's this big push that law enforcement needs to be more and more transparent. Yeah. Um, and there's been a lot of outcry about interactions between law enforcement and people living with a mental illness. Yeah, yeah. But then on the other end, there's a lot of people saying, I don't want the public to know about my illness. And I don't want the yeah. public to know about my family's illness, you know, that because there's so much stigma. But where do you draw the line? No, it would it's be nice tricky. to have – and I'd – it would be interesting to research this, but if we had a state law that said, you know, police can keep, and we've gone down this road many right. times, that they police can choose or should keep anything mental health secret. Right. You know? um, but they don't. I mean, I think we err on the side of not telling anybody anything, but if someone subpoenas us or someone asks for the records and they say it's freedom of information, it's hard to say no because that's yeah. how the law's written. It's an interesting one. The other interesting thing is we've always discussed is the, the flip side of it. 
do you have a say we're going to keep a database of people with mental illness and who might come in contact with the police i think more people want to be on that database because they're yeah. afraid of you know they want to get the kit gloves when the cops come yeah which makes sense it it, it does and it, it's just sad though when people sometimes call and ask hey can i get my child yeah. or can i get on the do not kill list and it's like you know, there's no such thing. It's got to make you end. feel good about your job. Yeah. And I'm like, we don't just go out to kill people because you have an illness. But if people truly think that, I mean, it, they must be terrified. Yeah. If I really thought like, crap, if the cops ever stop me, I'm going to be shot. And A lot killed, of people think that. Like, yeah. that's scary. Yeah. Oh, it's scary. Yeah. I don't know what to do. Lisa, thank you so much yeah, for the thank question. Thank you, Lisa. Yeah. Those are great questions. Great follow up. Yeah. And if you guys have any questions, don't forget, you guys can send them to me like Lisa did online um, or that was on Facebook. You guys can send it to ask at gocit.org. Don't forget to check the show notes. You guys can get a link to our Facebook page and to our email and any other things that have come up in the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. But please send us our questions. Don't forget, if you are enjoying what you're listening to, don't forget to like us and rate us on iTunes so other people can enjoy it as well. Even you, Lisa. Even you, Lisa. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye. introduction. And I also introduce my colleague, Melissa Arizona, who is a third year psychiatry resident and so is um, midway through her psychiatry training. And so we'll be co-presenting here. Yeah. So thank you everyone for coming. Uh, today we're going to be discussing uh, the topic of engaging people with their first episode of psychosis. So just as an introduction, I think psychosis is kind of like the lack of, um, loss of contact that people have. They don't know how to differentiate what is real and what is not real. Um, according to the statistics, around three out of 100 people suffer from psychosis in their lifetime. Just one episode. Um, some people that um, go through psychosis, they end up developing long-term mental illness, but some of them do not. Um, a lot of mental illnesses diagnosed to have symptoms of psychosis, including schizophrenia, bipolar, substance use, and severe depression. So some of the symptoms of psychosis are, for example, hallucinations. Um, most commonly seen in mental illness are auditory hallucinations. People um, describe them as murmuring voices, sounds. Less common would be visual hallucinations, which we mostly see on medical diagnosis, such as like dementia and delirium. Um, paranoia and delusions, feeling that people are out to get them, people are gonna be following them, watching them, tapping their devices. Um, disorder thoughts or speech, which is a little bit more difficult to see, um, but they end up having very disordered sentences. They don't have a thread of thought. Um, some people make up new words. Um, changes in feelings or mood. This can be mostly chronic or prodromal. Family members start seeing how they become like more isolated. Social skills are declining. They seem more depressed, more apathetic. And changes in behavior, um, a lot of uh, commonly seen in changes of like eating patterns, changes in sleep, laughing at inappropriate times. 
just want to pause there too. We often think of, in psychosis, we often think of the hearing things and the seeing things and these hallucinations um, or hearing about the delusions where people think that um, there's maybe cameras in the rooms. And those are the easy ones to describe. Those last three, the disordered thoughts or speech, the changes in feeling or mood, or the changes in behavior, those are sometimes the hardest ones for people to describe when, they're, when it's happening to them for the first time. Or family members have a really, really hard time. They know something's different about their child or their, or their teenager or their young adult. Um, but these last three are a little bit vague. And so as we'll talk a little bit with first episode psychosis, sometimes there's a delay between the onset of these symptoms and the, and the, the person or the family knowing how to ask for help or what that looks like. And that's because those last three categories of symptoms are really hard to name and describe if you don't have the language. Okay. So what is important to know about the first episode of psychosis? Um, as the title says, the first episode of psychosis can be very confusing and very fearful time for the person and also for the family involved. Um, it's the first time they go through this. They Most of the time, they don't know how to describe it. They're very confused. They don't know what's going on. So sometimes it's very difficult to ask for help because they don't really know who to ask for help. Uh, about 100,000 adolescents or young adults in the U.S. experience the first episode of psychosis per year. So frequently, as we said before, families and individuals are going through this very confusing time and they don't really know how or where to seek the help. Um, they don't really know how to describe what's going on. They just see some type of change in the individual, but they don't really know how to describe it. Um, and just to keep in mind, very frequently law enforcement are the first responders and the first point of contact with these individuals. Just to keep in mind that since this is the first contact they have with mental health and also like law enforcement, to be compassionate. And we don't want to instill fear as the first contact and just make them run away from law enforcement asking for help and also mental health treatment. And so again, the, the thing that makes us different from psychosis too is these, these symptoms can be really, really frightening and really scary. It's horrible to feel that there's cameras watching everything that you do or some of these delusions and some of these um, hallucinations. People who've lived with psychosis for a while, there's something in the back of their mind that may, that may realize, okay, this gets better, or if I go to the hospital, or if these people help me, it'll get better, even if they can't articulate. But when somebody's experiencing this for the first time, they don't even have that memory anywhere. And so they really, so the, the terror sometimes of these symptoms um, can really be distressing. Go ahead. Uh, Rob DeBuck, if I can ask a question. Mm. Yeah, so often it's hard for us, um, normal people, mm. uh, air quotations, to really wrap our head around what's going on in another person's mind. Mm -hmm. So if, if somebody's in a psychotic break and they believe what they are seeing or hearing is like really true, mm -hmm. so does the fear come from the fact that they, they fear that maybe they're being watched or does the fear also come from the fact that they know that they're not thinking properly? You've summarized it really well, and I think it's both. I mean, so people sometimes can find the words to say, my mind's not working, and that's really scary in itself. And then you may have these delusions that are also really terrifying. So the whole experience can be very, very frightening. And, and you've articulated that very well. So we're learning more about um, really the course of psychosis and how to improve outcomes. And there's been a lot of work recently into this idea of the duration of untreated psychosis. 
So this is the length of time between the onset of first symptoms and when somebody gets engaged in treatment and um, has access to medication and some of the treatments available. And what we know is if you have a long period of, a long duration of untreated psychosis, that tends to be associated with worse outcomes. And there's a variety of reasons. You're going untreated for a long time. Um, you're not getting connected with care. I think these symptoms can really cause a lot of impairment and function. And so it's harder to stay engaged in school. It's harder to stay connected with your family um, because the symptoms themselves can be really disruptive. And so there's a big um, effort to reduce the duration of untreated psychosis. So in the US, what we know is that the median duration of untreated psychosis is, is about 74 weeks. So that's like a year and three quarters where somebody has these symptoms and hasn't been able to connect with the healthcare treatment system and get a diagnosis, get some treatment, get medication. Um, but in some of these studies, sometimes the duration of untreated psychosis is as long as six years. Internationally, the recommendation is that we'd like to get that down to three months. So if somebody's experiencing these symptoms, we'd like to be able to get them engaged in treatment within three months. Um, again, we know that the longer, longer duration of untreated psychosis is associated with work, worse outcomes, including worse social functioning and more severe symptoms. And also it looks like really kind of these social outcomes, like they're people are less likely to stay in school, to stay employ employed and stay connected with their families. <laughs> Some of the reasons with the longer duration of untreated psychosis is oftentimes um, during this period people self-medicate um, because the feelings are so distressing and so they can use um, marijuana, substances, alcohol, and so the, sometimes the co-occurring substance use can cause problems. Um, and also that we know, especially relevant to today's talk, that one of the factors uh, for people who have especially long periods of duration of untreated psychosis are people who've had contact with the criminal justice system and been incarcerated during that time. That seems to delay the onset of treatment. I think the other thing to mention too, psychosis can happen at any age. Really often the, the most common time that people have their first deficit psychosis is usually late teens um, and 20s. So we often look kind of as a whole, it tends to be between the age of 15 and 30. Sometimes people have psychotic symptoms earlier, sometimes later, but it's usually between the age of 15 to 30, kind of 18 to 25, it's where you see the peak onset. Um, so this is also a hard time too. This is when kids are changing, um, teenagers are changing, people are moving out of the home. And this is also why it's often hard for families to sort of put their finger on it and they're thinking, oh, is this just adolescence? Is this drug use? Is this my child wanting to kind of individuate and get away from me? And so I think sometimes it's hard to kind of figure out what's, what's normal development and what's some of the um, signs of a, of, a, of a mental health problem. And it's a very vulnerable time. We know that there's some increased risks during this period. Um, there's a lot, there's a range of data here now, but it looks like studies are showing that somewhere between maybe 10 to 30% of individuals with first deficit psychosis um, attempt suicide before they actually get engaged in treatment. Um, I do want to make want to point out the vast majority of people with psychosis will never commit an act of serious violence. Um, but among the individuals with psychosis who do have histories of violence, this risk of violence is highest early in the course of their illness. So again, in that first deficit psychosis um, phase before they've received treatment. And again, these are all the kind of the factors that, you know, they're younger, they more, may be more likely to have problems with substance use at this time. Um, 
And again, another risk factor is somebody who's already had a prior history of violence. But again, this, this time when there's so much change is a particularly vulnerable time for folks. So as first responders, the goals when interacting with somebody with psychosis is assessing and ensuring safety for everyone involved, and ideally engaging that individual in a medical treatment. Um, so it's helpful to reassure the individual and their families that treatment can be effective, and really working as a team to de-escalate and diffuse any potentially tense situations. So what we know about psychosis is that it generally makes people much more sensitive to emotional tones and stimulation. So if you're, notice, if you're working with somebody or encountering somebody who may have some of these symptoms, it's really especially helpful to keep the environment as low-key as possible and to speak to the person with a kind, matter-of-fact tone of voice. Now, they will frequently have so many symptoms um, and other perceptions and other things going on that it's very hard for them to attend and to register. So you want to use short sentences and really try to avoid going into long explanations. Um, ideally, you want to be very concrete, very specific, and avoid abstractions and generalities. And we'll talk about, we'll give some examples. Um, and ideally, just trying not to convey negative judgment, so just being careful and using neutral words and providing kind of consistent, sincere praise and positive feedback. So the idea is to really engage somebody and keep things pretty neutral and, um, and again, very, very specific. Because they may be having a hard time processing information, um, again, the goal is really calmness and clarity. So after you speak, you might want to pause and give the person plenty of time to digest the information and respond. And again, you want to use simple words and repeat the same language rather than trying to explain it in different, using different words. Um, so for an example, I was talking with somebody recently and he had a delusion that his arm was going to fall off. And I think he was having a perceptual disturbance um, that something, his arm felt odd, and that was probably a hallucination. Of, um, and so then he was, became convinced that, it, that his arm was going to fall off. And so he probably repeated about 100 times asking if his arm was going to fall off. And rather than explaining what it was or giving him any medical explanation, uh, I was actually working with his family just to say, your arm is okay, you're safe. Your arm is okay. And I think we probably had to say that to him a hundred times, but each time we said it in a very soothing way, he was able to calm down for a little bit. So that leads into the idea that you don't want to argue with people about delusional beliefs. Um, if we directly confront the delusions, it usually causes people to get defensive um, and they're less prepared to consider alternatives. On the other hand, you don't want to go along with the the delusions or agree either. So sometimes you want to get to a place where you just agree to disagree. Um, and this idea of approaching delusions in a share, spirit of shared inquiry. But sometimes again, it's just acknowledging their distress and not really kind of um, arguing with them about whether it's reality or not. Okay, so Dr. Grazano, I'll give you some, you want to go through some examples? Sure, I'm going to read them. So, for example, a person with psychosis says, 
God created the world in seven days, and on the seventh day he rested, and I can rest on this medicine. So an appropriate response would be, wow, resting is so important. You must be totally exhausted if you can't rest. So the client says, yeah, they put me on this really high dose. Appropriate response would be, how about if we talk to the doctors about doing something to help you rest? Does that make sense? Yeah. And so here, you're probably not engaging around the whole idea about God and the world and the seventh day, but aligning that they are tired and they're exhausted, they want to rest, and just reinforce, let's figure out how to help you get some rest. And the other one is a little bit more about what we're talking about in terms of like going along with the delusions or fighting them. So client says, there are aliens in my neighborhood. An appropriate response would be, rather than saying, we're going to take you to a place without aliens, much rather say, that sounds scary, are you sleeping and diffuse the situation? Or let's go, let's get you to a place where it's safe. Instead of going along with maybe lying to them and promising, I'm going to take it to a place where there's no aliens, because what happens is that they go there and they might see aliens, and then the rapport is broken, there's no trust, and they and then what happens with the situation with the law enforcement? They won't trust them anymore. It's tricky. And so again, just really um, emphasizing that, that sometimes more important than what you say, the tone of voice is key. And so because people with psychosis are very heightened to stimulation and sensor, any kind of sensory input, the noises, the sounds, the lights, the, the, the visual, as much as you can, keeping kind of the tone of voice really calm, really reassuring. And this is something we work with family members on too. You can imagine if, if somebody's asking the same question a hundred times, we get a little snappy when we, <laughs> and so as much as possible, we help people understand that this is a biological illness um, that people's sensory systems are in way overload and rather than coming up with a perfect response it's much it's mostly important to just have a really calm soothing tone of voice and that will help a lot with with have really kind of downplaying everybody's fear so just lastly i think um there was a presentation earlier in the year about our first episode of psychosis program for those in the albuquerque metro area and in new mexico we do have a resource, and so here's the website and the phone number. This is a clinical program for individuals and their families with first episode psychosis. And so they provide a lot of intensive support. Um, they provide clinical, clinical care, um, but also a lot of skill building with the individual and the family. Um, and the goal of the program is both to get the medical care to the client, but also to help them stay connected with their family, uh, to stay in school and get support in terms of their education, and then also support in terms of staying in work too, because all those parts of um, being involved in society are really important for people. For people, so that is that that information for folks. Any questions?